With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. None other than the man Moses to free his people. God had promised Abraham that I would pick a people selection and I would bless all the other nations through those people. They would know, the world would know who I am by your conduct, by the way you worship me. And they had gone through that and up and down, and now they've entered into slavery. And now Moses has been, calling, been called to free them. And they've been, they've been freed for a while, and then they've sort of been walking around the wilderness. Somewhat almost appears kind of aimlessly for a while. God had promised them, I'm going to give you this great land. The only condition, the only prerequisite to that, attaining of that great land, that you're going to finally have is, you have to obey my voice. You have to listen to me. You have to obey me. You have to trust me. And probably most of us here know that how well that turned out. They had trouble with that. They had trouble with that trust and obeying because as they were walking through this wilderness, the only thing that they could pick to do was to complain about their leader and to complain about God. Picking on Moses was kind of easy because if you pick on God... They've witnessed what happens when they do that. The earth swallows them up, or they, the Lord brings some form of pestilence and wipes them out. And so, but they pictured, it's much easier if we find a way to make fun of, or to poke at, the leader. That makes the most sense. And, and it's kind of like a way, well, he shouldn't be doing these things, he's kind of odd, and so we'll pick on him. And then eventually, they found out that that didn't work out either. God said, you... You choose my servant to complain about, you're complaining about me. Moses interceded for the people, and the people were spared. And now as Moses passes on, Moses was originally given the condition saying, go into the promised land, lead my people there. But then something happened, and Moses was condemned, or he was told, you can no longer enter my people into that land. This isn't your place, Moses. Someone else is going to have to take up this place for you. And they've already seen this land somewhat. They've already been into there. They've spied it out. They've seen what happened, and they brought back the reports, and yeah, this is a scary place. The people are big. The buildings are big. They know what they're doing. We're like ants. We're like grasshoppers to them. We're little bugs. They can easily squash us. But God had told them that they could take that land. And out of that, there was only two people, only two people that said, yeah, we can do this. And out of those two people, God blessed those two people. But they were condemned as the whole because the whole could not understand how they could ever take this land that was so powerful. They could not understand how victory would come about because their enemies were so great. Even though they had witnessed all these previous miracles, even though they had witnessed all that God really can do, they figured maybe this time God won't help us. We have to go by the arm of our flesh. We have to go by our own strength. And if we're doing that, if we're making calculations, we fall way short. Literally. 
We're much shorter than them. And as they enter into this time of so much doubt, that seems to be the thing that God really dislikes at this time for them. He hates their doubt. Because as they're entering in, God said, you're going to take this land. I promise you, you will. You have to trust me. I say, God, that seems really hard to do because our enemies are so great and so strong. We can't take this land. And God punishes them for their doubt by allowing them to walk aimlessly in the desert for years and years. And it's not as though there was a time limit where God said, okay, you're going you're gonna to be walking around in the desert, and then now is coming to your time limit. Now is whatever B.C., now is the time at which you can enter the promised land. You know what God's time limit was? Until all the doubters were dead. Until all the people who mocked God's promises were wiped out. Until the last one had been buried. God said, now is your time. And he raises up a new leader, Joshua. And Joshua has passed the baton. Joshua is laid upon with the spirit of leadership, much as Moses. And now, they're going into this land, or they're having hope of going into this land at which God had promised them to take. But they had to follow the conditions at which God had given them. And usually, we always focus on the battle form. We always focus on, because in our perspective, that battle form would seem somewhat ridiculous, right? Because we would think, okay, what you got to do is it's a big wall, so you either got to get Molotovs or grenades, or you got to get the biggest battering ram out there and just tear down their wall and destroy them. But God says, what I want you to do is I want you to circle around so many times, seven times, you do this seven times, and you do that, and you do that, and he says, and then the walls are just going to come crumbling down, and you're going to enter in, and you're going to take that land. But the most interesting thing to me is that they did not complain at that time. Those people, this generation was different than their ancestors. This generation had figured, we saw what happened to them. We know that they perished because of their unbelief. We're going to trust God, even though this way seems absolutely ridiculous. Even though this way seems like, there's no way. You don't picture, there's, in warfare, you don't study music. You don't study, okay, this is how we march to this. I mean, there's some aspects of that, of course. But you don't take a class in music theory. You don't take a class studying those things in that type of warfare. For them, that was very important. Their warfare had seemed absolutely ridiculous to the rest of the world, and yet God blessed that form. But my focus not so much is on their victory, and my focus is on what they had to do before they could get their victory, or what the conditions were. So before that, in chapter 5, you have the Lord saying, and given the condemnation of their ancestors, saying that before you had your people were wiped out because of unbelief. And now I want you to circumcise your children. And now, he says in verse, in verse 8 through 9, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, 
Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal literally meaning in Hebrew to roll away. Something being rolled and pushed out. There's something that had to change within them. Their identity had to be changed. Before they could ever have hope of entering into this new land, who they were and how they structured themselves had to be transformed. For these people, they were no longer ex-slaves. They were no longer ex-Egyptians. They were to be Israelites. They were to be people of God. They were to be transformed and renewed, not just to be known for what they don't do, but now to be known for what they are actively doing, actively participating in. Their identity had to be transformed, and their reproach had to be taken away. Before they could ever enter into this new land, God said, I want you to remember that you are different. I want you to remember who you are, what Abraham, what your ancestors had sacrificed for this moment. I want you to remember the way in which your ancestors had fallen in their unbelief. All because they did not trust in my promises. They were laid waste in that place. Ironically enough, it was their ancestors that had said, our children are going to die in this area, Moses. Our children are going to die, God. Let us go back to Egypt. That's what's most comfortable for us. It's what works for us. Please, God, let us go back to Egypt. We long for the leeks, whatever that exactly means. Their mouth watered for vegetables. I've never had my mouth water for vegetables, so I cannot relate with that aspect. I mean, if they were like cherry pie or something, then I can understand that. Glory. And here they come, and God says to them, yeah, I want you to go about this. I want you to take this land. And he had given this condemnation of their people. And they said, our children are going to be the ones who perish. And ironically enough, they were the ones who perished. And their children moved on. They were the ones who had faith. And they were the ones who were successful in their mission. Their reproach had to be taken away. They were no longer to have that old identity. But now they were having the new identity of being called out ones. Separated, holy. And going on in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Their identity had to be changed and their spiritual, the spiritual significance behind what they ate had to be changed. Because for them, if you study the Old Testament, you realize there's a lot of festivities, there's a lot of parties apparently going on. Meals mean something to these people. Meals aren't just random meals. For them, it means something. The Passover meant something to them. The Passover was the time in which if the blood was on the doorpost, the Spirit of the Lord would pass over there, and they would be spared. But their enemies were wiped out, those who did not have the blood on the doorposts. So the Passover represented both the judgment of the ungodly and also mercy upon the righteous. 
God's salvation and God's judgment being represented at the Passover. And they're told to keep that. They're told to participate in that. But the main section that I want us to focus on is that the manna had ceased. If you're familiar, as they were walking around the land, they were given the stuff from the sky and they were told to eat that. And there was under certain conditions that you could keep it. Talk about trust. For me, I want to have, you know, not backup plan B and C, but I want to have all the way to D and all the... I want to have a lot of backup plans. For them, they were not to really have a backup plan per se. Only under certain conditions, the Sabbath, certain festivals, certain times in which you aren't supposed to collect this stuff. If they were, they were to keep it in a jar, it would rot. It would be done away with. God would wipe it out. And God said, you're to trust for my provision day in day out. Manna was a representation of God's provision and the trust and obedience in which they were to have in God. Because God was their provider. But now God had chosen to cease that provision and said, this is it. You're going to take this land. Victory is going to be yours. That must have been so exciting. And these people have heard about this ever since they were a child They were told from their parents, we're going to enter this land. We're going to finally have a place to stay. It's hard not having a place to call home. I don't know, some people like traveling. I like traveling up to a certain extent, up to a certain point. And then I like to just be home and nap for a day. That didn't always work out. But ideally, that's what I would want to do. I I, I like traveling... But there's just something special about that place in which you can relax. There's something special about that place in which you can call home. For the people of Israel, they had not had that for years upon years. They lived in tents. They've camped. Camping can be fun. Up to a certain point. I don't picture camping to be a habitual lifestyle. My parents love camping. I'm not the biggest fan of camping. You know, they're out there, you know, swatting the mosquitoes and getting their hot dogs burnt and dropping in the fire. And I'm just over here, like, you know, playing on my phone. And I'm like, I, I, like, I like some of the outdoors feel to it. But there's to a certain extent where the bugs start biting me and I'm like, I don't understand this. Why do you like this? But for them, they can camp for a whole week. But eventually, even in their camp enthusiasm, there's to a certain extent. They wouldn't want to live that way for so long. My mother... Actually, during part of her childhood, that's the way she used to live, was just camping for about a year. Just going from place to place. She's homeless. And she said that was a really hard time in her life, but she learned so much. But she said there was never that place at which you could feel. They had each other, but there was never that place in which you could feel that full relaxation of home. For the people of Israel, they didn't have that. And now God says... The man at which you have been trusting in, the man at which you have been just walking around, and then there it is. Now it's finally ceasing. Now you're finally going to have a land to call your own. But they had to trust in that. Can you imagine that? Something that you get every day, and then all of a sudden God says it's not going to be there anymore. You're just going to have to eat from the land. You would have to trust that you're going to take that land, or else you're not going to eat. Studies suggest that 100% of the time, if you don't eat, usually don't survive. For them, if they would never have food, they would not survive. They're going to be wiped out. And here, at this time, their identity had to be changed, their reproach had to be taken away, 
and their spiritual diet had to be transformed. You and I, this morning, what are ways in which our identities must be transformed? What are ways in which, as revival, as we're focusing on revival, what are the ways in which our identities must also have that form of victory? God says to the people, remember from where you have fallen. But he doesn't tell them to stay there. He doesn't tell them, remember how you used to do that and that. That's who you were. And just kind of dwell on that forever and never really go anywhere else. But he says, repent and do the works that which you did at first. Remember who you were and now take action toward that. Because your identity has been changed. I used to work at a uh, recovery program for men that were addicted to... uh, um, alcohol and drugs. And uh, testimony time was both great and at times if they weren't fully spiritually mature at the time, it was really rough. Because it kind of turned... We, we wouldn't really have one guy give up a testimony. We would kind of have them all do a group testimony. And so you have one guy after the other, one guy after the other, one guy after the other. And I noticed a trend very quickly. They kind of had to outdo each other in their testimonies. Well, I did drugs for two years. Then the next guy, I did drugs for four years. I was the worst of them all. And the next guy, I did drugs for eight years. I was the worst of them all. And I think to myself, we're all the worst of them all. We're all in bad conditions. Because they focused so much on who they were that they never allowed themselves into blossoming of what they're going to become in Christ. Sometimes in our own testimonies, we can focus so much on our past that we never allow God's vision of our future to take over. And we just become so dwelt in who we are. Maybe it's wrapped up in shame. Maybe it's wrapped up in doubt that God can ever transform us. But God has transformed such great people in the Scriptures. God has transformed such great people that I've witnessed in my own life. And even myself. Our own identity must be transformed, must be changed. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word transformed in the Greek literally means to be almost to be molded or to be pushed out of something of a press. For instance, if you have a, a water hose and you put one of those nozzles on them, which I really loved playing with as a kid, and even to this day, you uh, have all these different settings. You, know, you have flat, you have spray, you have jet, you have all these things. The water itself isn't really doing that. It's the nozzle that pushes the water out and makes the water conform according to the nozzle. An imagery of transformed is just that. We're being transformed and molded according to the renewal of our mind, according to transformation going on by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. And it's key that I put 
for the people of Israel, they were no longer to be remembered simply as ex-slaves or ex-Egyptians. They now were to have their own identity and who God called them to be. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. Now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice of kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God had called the Ephesians. God has calls us. Remember our former way of life, but don't get stuck there. God has called us to something so much better, so much grander. In our mission as this church, God has called us to be a witness to this community, to this area, in ways that we can't even imagine, ways in which maybe we haven't fully gone to our full potential and understanding what God has called us to do. As we've been studying and looking back in our past of this church, the providence of the hand of God has been so active in who we are. So active in what God has called us to do. I love how, I've never mentioned this from, to anyone, but I love how at this church, everybody knows where everybody lives. Everybody knows everybody. At the city, I don't quite get that. And I'm like, I don't know where people live. I don't know where most of my coworkers live. And when I do know where they live, I forget and they're like, oh, yeah, you've been to my house like five times. I'm like, I still don't know where you're at. But it's amazing how you all have the interconnections there. And I love to hear about your Bible studies. I love to hear about your discussions with each other. That is not just a Sunday thing for you. That is not just, well, that's my church life, and I've got to keep my personal life out of that. But Christ as Lord truly does rule your life. Christ as Lord rules not just your church time, but your personal time, your family time, everything as well. Because you know, you know what he's called you to do. In Colossians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation or heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Their approach, which had kept the Colossians from bondage, that had kept the Colossians in their spiritual form of slavery, God said, God had rolled away. God had taken you out of that, and now he has called you to be his own. Out of our own identity, it must be changed, and it must be recognized as well. And also, our spiritual diet must be changed as well. For the people of Israel, they had this provision of manna, but God had called them and said, that's something different now. Now you're to eat of the land of Canaan. 
So what does reconcile with our own spiritual diet? Well, the main one that I can think of is this book right here. We can never neglect this book. Your Bible doesn't have to be as big as mine. But still, this book rules who we are and defines our identity. And neglecting it, because physically, like I said, we can't go physically without eating. And here, we're going to get an opportunity to do that eventually, is to eat, which I look forward to, because I haven't eaten all day. I haven't ate all day. And, and coffee, I look forward to coffee as well. But, for these people, their diet had to be transformed because their diet wasn't just that aspect of eating, but it was something spiritual for them. For us, our nourishment comes from this very book. It comes from what it says and the life applications in which we get from it. In Hebrews, the author tells them, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Usually that verse is given in a negative connotation. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts us. But, sometimes those cuttings need to be done within our hearts. There can be at times when I'm reading my Bible, especially when I get to the Sermon on the Mount, and I read that section, and I'm convicted, and it's painful and it's uncomfortable, but I know it's a process that must happen. I know it's a process that must be there, because it's good for me. As a child, whenever I would scrape my knee or hurt myself, which happened a lot, my mother had to pour rubbing alcohol and disinfectant. That's a very painful process at first. I mean, knowing that and seeing that, it's something that stings, but it's something that cannot be ignored. If we just continue to go throughout our life ignoring all of our wounds, never seeing a doctor, that's probably not good for us. That's probably going to end very badly. But that painful process might eventually come about so that way a greater process can begin. God's word must cut things within our lives, must convict us to bring about something much better, to bring about something in which we were called to do. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Before we close, as you turn your Bibles, if you can turn your Bibles to Hosea, which is an interesting place to turn, right? You may have to go and look at the index to see where that's at, and there's no shame in that. The minor prophets are not exactly places that we may spend a whole lot of time. Hosea chapter 8, as Hosea is preaching to these people, it's amazing to me how specific Hosea the prophet gets for them. And what needs to be renewed, what needs to be revived for themselves. Hosea chapter 8, set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture who is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. 
With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? What a condemnation. Said, you've set up these leaders. I don't even know who they are. That's not the way I've set it up. I do not recognize their calling. I do not recognize their leadership. I do not recognize their authority. You set up gold and silver, things of which I've blessed you with, and you've made and fashioned them into idols of which you worship and devote your entire lives to. And God says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? It's not just that they're usually innocent, habitually innocent, and every now and then they kind of slip up. God says, where is your innocence? Have you become incapable of being able to function in who you are? And what I've called you to do. For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire Allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon rise because of the tribute. For these people who had forgotten God, God had left them to their own devices. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they were regarded as a strange thing. So I've written my law to these people, and yet it's regarded as an oddity. It's regarded as a strange thing. Some of this, oh, what's this? God had said, I've given my laws for you that you may have life. But they, rep- they eventually have taken exactly what they have sowed. For us, if we continue, if we ever ignore this book, and ignore its promises for us, that victory that the people in Jericho had in trusting in God, we never can obtain to that victory unless this book, God's Word, can be trusted. Unless we have our authority in this book, then all other things will be wiped away. In my own life, as now I'm going through the process of looking at maybe trans. Uh, transitioning into full-time ministry as churches are contacting me, I usually, usually that the interview processes, they ask me so many questions, and then they say, well, now you get to ask us some questions. And me, I don't ask the usual questions. Most of the times, the questions they say they get is, what are the demographics of the church? What does the church do in this? What are the programs of the church? What does this look like? What does that look like? Me, I always ask them two questions. What is the role of the Bible for a Christian's life, and how do you view preaching? How do you know the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon? Most of the answers are, well, a good sermon brings people in, a good sermon, and one person literally said, a good sermon is just simply good. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know how a good sermon is just because it's good. But one church said to me, I said, you know, we love our intern pastor, but sometimes... It just feels like story time. He says, we get a little bit of Bible, 
and then about 21 minutes worth of story, and then at the end, we get the Bible again. And I said, we're kind of here to really listen to what God wants us to do. We're kind of here to listen to God. Not so much story time. Although those are important, illustrations are important, stories are important, characteristics and personality are important. But this book is God's word for us. That should be what's important. And for them, when they ask me, what kind of programs do you use? What kind, of, what kind of structure do you have? I'm like, I don't know the Bible. I don't really know what else to say. Sometimes some churches can be so structured and so many programs that they have no place for this book to fit. You've seen the demonstration of the vase with, as they fill it with rocks and then they fill it with sand and then you know, they do the vice versa and show you really can't, you know, you don't have time to fill all this stuff, so you have to take out certain things, and then you have time to fill it up with things. That's kind of the way I see the Bible's place in some churches. You can have all of these things to take its place, but it has no place to find its home within its people's church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've called our identity to be transformed. That you did not leave us in the state in which we were at. But that you heard our cry. You had compassion. You had pity. And you responded to us. We thank you for your responsive heart and your responsive action. That you choose to do so not out of obligation. Not out of just because you're God so you have to. But you choose to do so out of love for us. Not so that we, may, we can owe you something, so that you can be repaid. You already have it all. But we thank you that you've called us to so much more. That you've called us to be faithful people, to one another, and to be faithful to you. We pray that as we go throughout our lives, our spiritual diet may be transformed by this book. Not to just read it, just to have something to check off of our list and then go on with the rest of our lives. This, this book really changes us. This book really transforms us. Because there's so many voices speaking out in the world. So many things that want to talk to us. But your word is the one thing that's going to stand forever. The one thing that's never going to be rolled away. The one thing that's never going to wither away. Help us throughout our week. In Jesus' name. Amen. final song this morning if you'll stand is number 292 lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.